Let me do a very quick uh, 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 review of where we went last year. These, these images will help you. As we started talking about, uh, we're dealing with the study on the Holy Spirit, uh, using the phrase in the book by Francis Chan, uh, Forgotten God. Uh, um, uh, uh, we are not alone in this, but certainly within our heritage, uh, within the Restoration Movement, uh, uh, somehow or another, the Holy Spirit got dropped from the dialogue. And I think there's a lot of reasons for this, uh, but I can't find any of them that are good. And uh, 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 I do know this, that when you listen to the Scriptures, uh, uh, the Holy Spirit was unabashedly and uh, evidently demonstratively present in the dialogue of the first century church. And it should be today, too. Um, uh, talking about the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that it's naturally going to lead us into the abusive ways, perhaps, that has been used over the centuries. And therefore, if we don't talk about it, somehow we won't fall into it. No, I think if we don't talk about it, we do become more vulnerable to <laughs> falling into the problems. Uh, so we need to talk about this and understand it and, and, and work through it. The Holy Spirit is a wonderful promise of God. It comes with enormous blessings. And not talk about it as to uh, uh, just handicap our ability to understand how wondrous God is. And uh, it accepts uh, one basic premise that without God we can do nothing. You take the Spirit out of the picture, uh, which uh, uh, makes us very vulnerable, thinking that we do this on our own. And uh, if we don't see how those dots connect, that's one of the primary reasons we need to study this issue, and you need to do it in your personal life. Um, so we began with the Shema, remember, Deuteronomy 6, 4, is where the Jews began. And by the way, Jesus absolutely affirmed this, and so should we, that God is one. You Lord, love, learn the Lord, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And, uh, but we also noticed that God spoke and uh, is uh, just presented to us as the terms of a plurality. That is, a Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Um, and we talked about the Trinity idea. And um, an idea which is hard for me to fully grasp, but it should not surprise us when you look at the very fingerprints of God in the creation, whether just the body of Christ, which is one, but yet we are many, many uh, members, or even the very smallest molecule of God's creation we call an atom, which we didn't think could be split, but can be split, and found that in there is even a complex unity. Um, uh, so why should we be surprised that God is infinitely more complex than what he creates? And so uh, we shouldn't. Uh, we, although we may not fully understand how God can be one and yet have three very distinct personalities, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, which we see actually played out in different roles in the Gospels themselves. We mentioned the baptism of Jesus, God the Father speaking, the Holy Spirit descending, and Jesus himself in, in the incarnate stage uh, 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 in the flesh actually being baptized by John. Um, and you find this recurring throughout the New Testament. And um, uh, there, there in that one as an example. So... Uh, it, 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 uh, perhaps there is certainly a mystery to this. I think when we see God in face-to-face, -face, this will make sense in ways that in our limited exposure to the whole world, and that imbues the spiritual world as well, that we do not see, um, we just can't fully put it together. But God certainly points and gives us enough to Scriptures to understand uh, uh, the implications and get the idea. Kind of like understanding heaven. I may not understand everything about heaven because I've never been there, but I can know a lot about it if you pay attention. Um, and so, you know, uh, the, the main thing I want you to grasp is remember that, therefore, the spirit is not a force. Uh, it's not some sort of inanimate uh, uh, energy field uh, of God. It is a person who thinks, acts, feels, reads the scriptures. All of those scriptures are used to define the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Truth, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ is called many things. 
Um, spell it out, this in capital letters. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is not enthusiasm. He is not courage. He is not energy. He is not personification of all good qualities, like Jack Frost is the personification of cold weather. Actually, the Holy Spirit is not a personification of anything. He has himself individuality. He is one being and not another. He has will and intelligence. He has hearing, has knowledge, sympathy, and ability to love and see and think. He can hear, speak, desire, grieve, rejoice. He is a person. And there's a lot of implications to this, but certainly one of those, if you just see the practical implications of why your theology matters to you, if we think the Holy Spirit only as an impersonal power or influence, which is if you look at other uh, religions in the world like animism that tend to uh, invest objects with power, um, the same idea, then our thoughts will constantly be, how can I get a hold and use the Holy Spirit? But if we think of him in the biblical way as a divine person to relate to, and infinitely wise, infinitely holy, infinitely tender, then our thought will constantly be, how can the Holy Spirit get hold of and use me? You see, it matters. So I place before you this key. I want you to repeat it with me again, because this is a filter that I hope that as we go throughout the semester will become uh, one that you can fill this, if you will, this framework up, and it has deeper and deeper meaning to you. And it will become very practical, ultimately, because it will help you ask the question, so how do I know something is from God or not? So all these things, supposedly, they're said they're coming from the Spirit of God. How do I really know, other than the fact the person says so? The statement is this. The Spirit's work is centered in Jesus Christ. Now, say it with me. The Spirit's work is centered in Jesus Christ. Say it again with conviction. The Spirit's work is centered in Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, I then took you to... Uh, 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 the Gospel of John. And before I did that, I just where I left you off, I, I took a few moments to say, let's remember that the texts we're about to read are, uh, were specifically spoken when Jesus had sequestered himself in seclusion with the twelve. This is just before the crucifixion. Jesus has traveled with these men for three, three and a half years. He has been predicting to them, by the way, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested by the religious leaders there. I'm going to be abused. I'm going to be crucified on the cross. I'm going to be buried. And three days later, I'm going to raise from the grave. And we keep on being told they don't get it. They don't want to get it. They're bewildered. They just cannot connect the dot between Jesus being the Christ, the Messiah, the one they've awaited for, the promise of the Old Testament prophets, this great and wondrous person who's going to save all mankind, uh, uh, starting with the Jews, and then this idea that now he's going to come and die on a cross. They just they, they, they put him in cognitive dissonance. They could not connect those dots. They refused to connect those dots. So they said, Jesus, we think you're God, but you're wrong. That's basically how it boils down at this juncture. So now we're right now knocking on the door. The last day or two. Um, the disciples, almost in resigned spirits, have followed Jesus into Jerusalem. Remember one of them said, well, we might just go with him too, so that we too may die with him. A bold statement, a courageous statement, but one of little hope. You know, we can't, well, who else are we going to follow? We'll just follow Jesus. But we're all going to get crucified for doing this. It doesn't make sense. And um, so, you know, it all is about to uh, happen, uh, and uh, life goes downhill. 
So to prepare these men for this, Jesus gets them together and to the best that he can given their limited ability to process all of this. He says, let me give you some, let me help you face what you're about to face. Because I'm telling you the truth. Read my lips. I'm going to, I'm about to go into Jerusalem now. It's imminent. You know, they're up in the upper room. He's washed the feet. He's, uh, 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 he's redefined the Passover feast to the special, now it's Jesus' supper referring to what is about to take place on the cross and its implications, something that will take place for the rest of history, an event. And then he mixes it with some teachings that come with all of these promises, and he's really trying to just give them strength. And embedded in this long dialogue of chapters 14, 15, and 16, we find the most concentrated teachings on the Holy Spirit by Jesus. Because built into all these promises he's making to them, be at peace, be of courage, this is how it's going to play out, everything's going to be fine, let me tell you why. And and woven into all that are five promises of the Holy Spirit. Very prominent. And of course, I ask him, why is it that we don't talk about it today? Um, It was rather important to Jesus. Why does it cease to be important to us? and its significance and understanding to us. But understanding that I talked about the uniqueness of the apostles, and I, I struggle with this, and I want you to as well, because you first, when you're ever looking at scriptures, uh, uh, you know, we're rather lazy sometimes, and we shouldn't be. And it's what leads to a lot of, you know, just anything goes, you know, uh, you want to text and something, let it mean that, you know, because it, 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 it's comfortable for you. Um, a text, let me throw out the statement, a text cannot mean what it never meant. Let me say again. A text, whatever it is, in the Scriptures, cannot mean today what it never meant back then. You must first understand that what they call the exegesis, the original intent of the passage. When Jesus said this to these 12 men, what was his point? I will tell you that's the same point today. So what a text did mean back then does mean today. But before I make this leap of applying it to my life, I have to kind of see it in this context first and say, okay, now how do I, what do I do with this thing? Um, and it's not always that easy. Um, but I'm going to do my best with this. And there will be plenty of people that disagree. Um, and, uh, but I, I can tell you what I understand from the Scriptures and looking at these passages, which I have done so for many, many, many years. And I'm not devoid of having read a massive number of scholars on this, many of them who disagree. But, you know, you, you study, you learn, you pray, and then you just make some decisions along the way. Um, so now we enter into this, this uh, you know, I hear the passage I read last week about the uniqueness of the disciples. And, of course, remember what was unique about them is that they were actually historically connected with Jesus in person. They actually eyewitnessed all of these things, and that's whom Jesus is talking to. And so he keeps bringing us, you who have been with me from the beginning. Well, you and I have not been with Jesus from the beginning. That's when he came onto the scene, started preaching, and called them the disciples. You know, I read about and see through the eyes of faith Jesus healing the, the, the blind, the deaf, the demon-possessed, but they were actually there. And even amongst that, you got Peter, James, and John that saw some things that none of the others saw, like the raising of the little girl, the mountain of transfiguration, you know. Um, 
Uh, I just know it happened, read about it, and get the basic context, see the wonder of it, and think, man, think about what it was like to actually be there, uh, and then to give eyewitness testimony to this thing. Well, uh, you'll see how that comes into play in just a minute. So I want to play through each of these passages. Let's look at them one at a time. Let me extract some things. I could, I could talk rather lengthy on any one of these passages. Uh, we don't have time to do that. I don't want, you know, I don't want to just, you know, so load you with cerebral challenges that you uh, do what I've asked you not to do and fall asleep. Um, uh, but I do want you to think, and yes, you are going to have to exercise some discipline in this thing to really think through and, and decide what is it going on in this text? Why is Jesus saying this? And what am I supposed to get out of this for today? So in the midst of all of this, Jesus says this, If you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, to find again here the Spirit of Truth. Okay. Let's look at this. Sometimes I'll throw out a few little ideas that I think will come to make more sense why I emphasize it later. So, uh, but let me throw this out. First of all, um, why the Spirit comes on whose request? You asking for the Spirit or someone else? Say again? Jesus. Okay, no, just, just a small item it seems. But the disciples are not told to pray for the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes upon the request of Jesus himself. He does the asking. So my first question is, who are you pursuing? Um, I find that to be a significant question in our culture today. Notice he says, um, he, is go- he will give you another counselor. Now, another counselor assumes there is a present counselor. And the present counselor is Jesus. Like the answer is always Jesus, right? Um, the... Um, uh, by the way, uh, the, using this word counselor uh, is unique to John. He's the only one who does this. He does it in concentration here, but he also uses it in First John, where he refers to Jesus as being a counselor. Or the word is advocate. One who speaks to God in our defense. You notice it's got kind of a legal uh, framework to it. When we are counselor, and I'm just trying to get you to, to, to tweak this idea of we are, we think more therapeutically. That, that's not how the word is used. The word is used more in terms of legal counsel. Does that make, help you a little bit there? The word actually in the Greek is the word paraclete. P-A-R-A-K, long A, L-T-O-S. Paraclete, paracletos, paraclete, paraclete. You've heard that word. You might have even heard sermons on this. Paraclete, that which comes up alongside you. Kind of puts his arm around you and walks along with you and helps you out. Kind of a uh, blue-collar definition for it, all right? Um, to give strength to. Now, I'm already beginning to get the sense that the Spirit is doing something. And that's what we're going to have to try to start building on here. Um, he's a helper. And he continues to work the work of Jesus through the disciples to defend, to defend the truth of Jesus in the life of the believer. Remember, when Jesus was on earth himself as the first paraclete, he was always put under trial. 
And if you read, for example, the classic chapter in John chapter 5, you see Jesus on trial and Jesus standing up in the courtroom, if you will, before the world and making his case. He throws all of these witnesses up in front of him. He says, what about you know, Moses and John the Baptist and the Spirit of God? And all these things are witness to who I am. And he turns the table and becomes their judge. The people who are judging him end up being judged by Jesus himself. This is what you see taking place here where now the Spirit indwells the believer and now that same context moves towards us. Well, we'll see how that plays out here as we go. Um, There you go. A simple idea. Um, Jesus is a paraclete. Jesus is going to leave, but they're not going to be orphaned. They're going to get another paraclete. But as it was promised back in Jesus' own words and John's interpretation back in John 7, that the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. He will even argue in this long context of 14, 15, 16, he tells the disciples, it's better that I leave you because until I leave, speaking of the death, burial, resurrection, and the ascension, which is all part of the, the all-in-one when you say glorified Jesus, um, until I'm glorified, the Spirit does not come. Because I wonder, why can't they just both come at the same time and be there? I'm not sure why. All I know is that that's how Jesus said it works. When I go, then that releases the Spirit of God by my request. And He will be poured out on all mankind in something rather unique and prophesied throughout Old Testament Scriptures. And it was a wondrous day was being pointed to. And they, of course, I'm sitting there thinking the disciples' shoes. Remember, these guys are bewildered, in denial. Are they, are they processing all the stuff? I think not. But they would later understand because of the Spirit's work. And we'll see how this works here in the few chapter, verses that come along. Uh, I just think these guys are overwhelmed and just in survival mode. All they can think of, Jesus isn't going to die. Jesus isn't going to die. Jesus can't die. Jesus, what would happen to us if Jesus died? That's all they can think of. And Jesus is trying to get through to them. It's okay. That's why I've come. And if you will process this, on the other end, it will be wonderful. Well, it's going to be wonderful anyway. It's just going to take you guys a while to catch up. That's all. Next promise. Chapter 14, starting in verse 25. All this I have spoken to you while still with you. Again, there's this language of he's not going to be with them longer. So, again, his very language is creating pains in their hearts as he's speaking. But the Counselor, the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit, referred to earlier as the Spirit of Truth, whom the Father will send in, notice, my name, um, I'll come back to that, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Okay. Now, how do I break this down? The Spirit comes in Christ's name to teach and to remind. Notice the goal was not to take them into future things. It was to get them to see back clearly to where they've already been with Jesus. To teach and remind. To be able to recall and fix in their minds what it is that Jesus had been saying to them all along. And so you'll notice, like, for example, in John's Gospel, and I brought this up to you before, if you've all listened, John will often speak in parentheticals. In other words, he will quote Jesus, that Jesus said this, blah, 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 and then he'll put in parentheses, by this, Jesus meant this, which back then we didn't get it, but now we do. Why are we getting it now? Because the Spirit of God has helped illuminate that and help us understand what we didn't understand when he first said it. So he first brought it back to their memory, 
and then you help them understand it. Teach and remind. Now, let me step back and get this in. When I say my name, um, the word my, uh, M-E, meh, or it could be E-M-E, meh. Uh, it's my being emphasized, like I versus I. Well, it's very important when you look in the Greek text that, that, that those emphases are noted. Here, Jesus is saying, the Father will send in my name. The Spirit's work is centered in Jesus Christ, who is being pointed to, tells you whether it's from the Spirit or not. So, catch the simplicity of model. The Spirit does not come to point away uh, to Himself and say, look at me, look at me. If you want to understand the Spirit's goal, it is always to point away from Himself to Jesus Christ. When you see that happening, you know the Spirit is involved. I mean, you can hang your hat on that. Who is the center of attention? And we'll see this borne out in other texts that we're about to look at of John. Because it keeps being emphasized over and over and over again. Jesus keeps saying this over and over again. It's about me! And the Spirit comes to make sure that point is made true. So Jesus does not point away from Himself to the Holy Spirit. Rather, the, 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 the Spirit points away from Himself to Jesus. That is, He will represent Jesus, not displace Him. Does that help you? The Spirit comes not to displace Jesus' role and attention. It puts precisely Jesus in the center of attention. When that's being done, I know the Spirit has been active. Now, what do I do with this teach and remind issue? Um, I struggle with that. Is there a sense where the Spirit of God can help me be reminded of the historical statements of Jesus. I read the scriptures too and put them in memory and try to, and I deal with certain circumstances and I find myself capable of saying, yeah, I remember Jesus said this and be able to speak to those moments. Uh, is that the spirit's activity? I believe so. I believe so. Um, does the spirit of God um, help me and teach me with the assumption that I am immersed in the Scriptures and read and try to understand. Because yeah. um, I, too, need reminding and understanding. I too find myself like the disciples, maybe not getting it the first time I read, but through prayer. Why do we pray then and ask for understanding as we study the Bible? If it's just a matter of your own intellect, just leave it up to yourself. You don't need God. So if you're praying for understanding, then what, tell me, what are you asking for? God's intervention and help or not? Or is that just pious activity with no meaning? So, whereas I see this promise was made primarily to the twelve and initially, um, I think the Spirit is active in my life and yours 
reminding you and helping you understand what you've exposed yourself to understand through scriptures. They just did it in person. Next promise. John 15. By the way, he's talked about the vine and the branches. All this sort of teaching woven into all of this. And he's also been talking about, and it's very important with this context, Jesus has been talking about if the world hates you. Many of these scriptures are written in the context of alienation from the world and being as a Christian, by the very nature of being connected with Jesus, you find yourself in intimidating circumstances because the world is in rebellion to God. So if you're in a relationship with God, that puts you in a tenuous position. If we really get it, and if you're really trying to live this way. Um, and he knows, and he's been telling his disciples all along, by the way, the time's going to come when you're going to be arrested and you're going to be just shoved in front of magistrates and kings uh, on, because of me and uh, uh, in chains and, and uh, uh, you know, so, but don't worry at those moments because uh, uh, God will, will, will help you articulate in those moments. And he proved himself true over and over and over again. As you look, even in the first century, it's the disciples when they were being arrested like John and Peter. And uh, it's the same they had the words to say. Where do you think they got those from? They just conjured them up because they're just really intelligent men who can be courageous and meet the moment boldly? No, because the Spirit of God was helping them. At least that's what the Scriptures tell us. You have to decide whether or not it was true or not. Is it really faith or are we just saying we believe in something that we're not really sure is true? So there's a context to this. We will all face the social consequences of being in relationship to Jesus and you'll see that kind of connects to some other things. It may be our difficulty in understanding the truth of these passages is because we have so accommodated ourselves to the nature of the culture in which we live as Christians that we really don't need the Spirit to help us out because we don't feel any tenuous tension with it. You with me? And I'm not suggesting, oh, go out and be caustic so people can persecute you so you can say, oh, the Spirit of God's helping me. Uh, that's not the point. But anyway, if you look at this, it says, When the Counselor comes, whom uh, I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, notice, He will testify about Me. And notice, and you also must testify. So there's kind of a collective effort here. We're not let off the hook here. Spirit's going to do some things for you. Testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. And there's one of those qualifiers that made the, the, those 12 men uniquely qualified as eyewitnesses. You and I are not eyewitnesses of Jesus. We are faithful witnesses of Jesus. The word used here for testify is the word matureo. M-A-R-T-U-R-E-O. Matureo, which is the same word from which we get the word martyr. Martyrs were not just those who got killed. They were those who were witnessing for Jesus and were persecuted and died because of it. They were testifying Jesus and paid the price. That's a martyr. Now, what that does not mean, what this does not mean, in the context, it doesn't mean that one looks into his heart and shares the warm and moving experience that he has had with God with others. It's not what it means. But a person with first-hand knowledge giving testimony about objective facts that gains verdict in a court, 
That's what that means. And what does the Holy Spirit say when he's testifying? Why, he speaks about what? Jesus! Not about himself, but about Jesus. That's how you recognize the Holy Spirit. He doesn't come to testify to, you know, great and thrilling experiences that a person has had. We cannot recognize that someone has the Holy Spirit because of some exciting personal experience. By the way, in our world today, and I can share with you a few myself when I was in the charismatic realm of church going and belief, and I'll share with some, we'll get to some of that later on, that did not validate and legitimize the fact that I was a child of God. Those were a dime a dozen in, this, in, the, in, the, in the circles that I walked in and messed up. And, of course, you see again this idea of the apostles being uniquely qualified because they had been with Jesus from the beginning. But I do see here, how do I apply this to myself, that in the context of intimidating, when I am actually living for Jesus and find myself living out because of the genuineness of my Christianity, do not run in fear from, but stand courageously and boldly in faith in God in those moments with other individuals who are not believers. Snatch your straw out of the wind. How about a, sitting in a class where you have a professor making fun of Christianity? And you want to withdraw and hide in the background. We says, okay, who of you and Christians in here? Not I. That I will be empowered by the Spirit of God to point to Jesus. And that I do not have to do it on my own. People are doing that all over the globe in countries where Christianity is being persecuted. Again, we live in a very peaceful world with that. And so perhaps it just misses our notice. When you talk to those from other countries, they see this in stark reality. And this is the text they would tell you. So this is why I've been able to do this. Next text. John 16, 8-11. When He comes, the Spirit of God, He will convict the world, notice, of guilt in regard to sin, righteousness, and judgment. Then He breaks it down for you. He says, in regards to sin, because men do not believe in Me. In regard to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see Me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Notice the present reality of that in Jesus' mind. So we have this kind of convicting. Another word that's translated in this part of this, the, the, the discussion here is it convict or convince. Is he trying to convince believers of the truth of this or convict non-believers of the truth of this? See, depending on which word you use and how you... Uh, interpret that word, elenko, um, uh, in the Greek, it tells you which way the emphasis of this is. You'll see, for example, this NIV translation, they choose the word convict. 
You say, why can't it be both? Uh, perhaps so. But the choice of word does suggest the basic direction to its, the spirit's activity. Now, I do know this, when I look at this, the spirit doesn't force or coerce anyone to believe. If so, I assume that since God's more powerful, that everyone on the face of the earth would be a Christian then. Unless someone has more might than God does. So obviously he's not coercing. Um, but there is a convicting nature to this. Um, and remember, this is also in the context of facing a hostile world. And um, all of a sudden, where I see the Spirit helping me survive and defend against the hostile world, all of a sudden now it puts me on the offensive. There's almost attacking. You see this? Just as the world first came and judged Jesus, Jesus turned the tables and judged the world. He had a way of doing this. Before you know it, all these people were saying all these horrible things about Jesus in that same conversation. Um, how did he get the upper hand here? I don't know how that happened. Well, there's the idea. And he didn't do it through uh, ugliness and argumentativeness and uh, uh, belligerence and antagonism. Uh, he did it very lovingly, very gently, very thoughtfully, but very boldly. Now, the Holy Spirit's relationship to the world is one of convicting or convincing. It's exposing the world. It's exposing that the world was wrong when it found Jesus guilty. It's not Jesus that was guilty. It was the world that was guilty. So when I see this taking place, I know the Spirit of God has been very active and involved. And it unveils the nature of certain things. First of all, sin in order to bring about faith in terms of righteousness. So I say, well, who's righteousness? Because the people were not righteous, but Jesus was righteous. And when I hear the Spirit's testimony, I realize that the truth is that that death on the cross was not the death of a criminal, an insurrectionist who got what he deserved, but what it really showed was that this was the death of the sinless Son of God that was for the sins of the whole world because everyone else was guilty. And when I see that truth being played out and reinforced and affirmed, I know the Spirit of God has been very active in the context. And in terms of judgment, Christ's death on the cross meant God's judgment upon evil. It was not the mere tragedy of or execution of a criminal. Jesus has not been judged and found guilty. The world has. And the Spirit comes to expose the truth of that. But you remember here the context. Jesus is speaking very clearly here in the context of a dealing with the hostility of a world around us. It assumes this. And then finally, I come to the text, the fifth context. And this is after um, it's, uh, uh, it speaks about the Spirit is going to, uh, you know, Jesus said there's some things you're just not prepared to hear right now. So I'm not going to tell you now, but later on the Spirit will uh, uh, bring out, out those progressive revelations to you. Help you meet the moment in the future. You with me? And he goes on to say this. He, the Spirit, will, know, will bring glory to, and the word is emphasized again, me! By taking from what is mine and making it known to, to, uh, to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine 
and make it known to you. But we get the whole ball of wax. We get everything. It all belongs to Jesus. He's offering it to us. And we step back and see the, the, the enormity of that promise. You may not fully understand it, but He's offering you something. Now, I think we can certainly understand the basis of glory. Step away from the Spirit's activity of glorifying Jesus. The Spirit's work is centered in Jesus, points to Jesus, glorifies Him. It's not really that hard to understand. Um, how many of you have ever read the, the first Corinthian letter? Just, just kind of basic. You remember how it begins? Paul kind of gets on to him about something. You remember? Right in the front end. He says, you guys are all divided. How were they divided? What were they saying at Corinth? If you were one of the members, you were doing something. You were claiming certain allegiances. But it wasn't to Jesus. It was to who? I'm of Peter. Another group over here. I'm of Paul. Another group over here. I'm of Apollos. And it seems you understand the context that the people were identifying themselves with the spiritual leader that came in and taught them at the time in which they made the choice to be baptized into Jesus. So the person who baptized them became their hero, if you will, and it became the focus of their attention. And so they broke up in all of these little fragments. And so Paul starts with these rhetorical questions. He said, now stop and think a minute. Was Paul crucified for you? And the answer to that is, no. Uh, were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. Uh, Jesus is the focus and center of all this, right? Because I've come, and, and this made Paul feel very uncomfortable dealing with this church, although there were some of them that were marching around with rah-rah, uh, you know, cheers on behalf of Paul. You know, who's for Paul? Let's stand up and cheer. And, you know, part of the church would get up and wave their confetti and all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, But Paul uh, said, whoa, time out. Uh, men, you guys have gone cattywonker here. Jesus is the focus. Now, the Spirit of God works in me, and I've come to glorify Jesus just as the Spirit has. So let's get the attention on Jesus. Let's glorify Jesus. So that's what Paul did. He called attention to it, and he adamantly, verbally, written form, and in actions with them when he was around them, said, you stop, you know, putting me on a pedestal. I'm just another servant just like you. Our roles may be different, but people, if it ain't about Jesus, then we've missed the whole point. So let's go back and look at Jesus. Now, here it's saying the Spirit's doing this. It's not that complicated to understand the intent. It takes us back to that model. The Spirit does not come to place attention upon Himself. When you see that taking place, you should at least stop and pause and be somewhat suspicious. Think it through. If the attention is solely on Jesus, then I can rest assured that the Spirit has been active in my life, in that person's life, or in the context in which I'm dealing with. Um, but where's the attention? Rather than Christ, the Holy Spirit has never has people centering on or interested in an experience of Himself, which I've encountered an enormous amount and used to teach that people should. So I come to Acts 2 as we close. Here we see, for the first time historically, all of this being played out. Not the only time, but the first time. And we'll come, we're going to come back and look at the book of Acts in thoroughness in terms because it's really all about the activity of the Spirit of God. 
you know, we talk about acts, acts of who? Everyone says the acts of the apostles. Well, uh, my understanding is it's really the acts of the Holy Spirit. And, um, and how the word spread from Jerusalem and to Judea and to Galilee and into the whole world. And how to get there because of the Spirit of God. Um, let me just say this. I, I, I never applied this to me currently, how I look at this. Let me just say this real quick. Um, do I believe as I read, you know, in the verses before they're talking about, the, you know, the, 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 the supplemental revelations? Um, I do not believe, I believe the scriptures are completed. Uh, anyone who suggests they're actually writing uh, additional scriptures, uh, uh, words of God that take the authority in my life, I would be very suspicious of and don't agree with. But do I believe the Spirit of God does open up for me new vistas to meet the new context of things that I'm dealing with in life and we as a church dealing with in our contemporary culture uh, and coming to understand and meet the challenges for us? So I think the Spirit engages that and helps us in that area. Yes, I do. I think the Spirit of God is actively doing that if we're open to it. Um, well, we could say more, but there it goes. Book of Acts. Uh, so we're going to look at this detail. Remember, basically, what happens, uh, you, you know, death, burial, resurrection, ascension is taking place. Disciples have been sitting around twiddling their thumbs in Jerusalem because Jesus says, just go and wait and it'll take place. Don't do anything, just wait. So they're off. And bam, it happens. On Pentecost. Um, Fifty days after the Passover, which is when Jesus was crucified. So, uh, you know, you're dealing with... Uh, um, Almost two months later, after the actual events, the horrific events, remember Jesus has been appearing for 40 days. They've eaten with him. They've touched him. They've seen what the resurrected body looks like. And by the way, what your resurrected body is going to look like. It didn't seem to have the same limitations as these earthly cursed bodies of ours. But the new ones we're going to get, uh, they can beam in, beam out. They can think in ways you can't think right now. I don't know how else to put it to you, but it was tangible. He ate with them. They could touch him. He was a physical human being, and he raised that way, by the way. And he says, when the same way he left, he's coming back. Well, that's all in the Heaven series I'm going to get to later on. Um, great stuff. And things that I'm not really sure we've thought through. Uh, in other words, when you die and go to Heaven, that ain't the end of the story. That's just the waiting tank until the real moment when you get your resurrected body. On the day of judgment. Well, um, <laughs> Holy Spirit. Um, so they're waiting around, and 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 boom, it happens, and it's very manifest. You have very tangible issues. Uh, the tongues as of fire lighting on their heads. Um, you have the sound as a mighty rushing wind, which is what drew the masses. Remember in Pentecost, there's thousands of people around, and they heard the noise. They started gravitating towards it, and they ended up in front of the apostles. You know, there they are, and they're speaking in tongues, and we're going to talk about all of this. And uh, so Peter, once all the crowds gathered, and God's done his thing uh, on his own initiative, uh, the apostles are now uh, filled and emboldened and ready to go. Uh, in other words, I think the lights are starting to go off. You know, the Spirit's showing up, and bam, they're getting it finally. After 40 days of asking Jesus all these questions, oh, are you now going to establish the kingdom of God? And Jesus, oh. Um, and now it's just, you know, the lights are going off. And I mean, it's, you know, all the synapses are going and, and, and life is good. Uh, the kingdom of God is ready to launch in ways it hadn't before. So um, 
Peter gets up as a spokesman. Now, notice what he does. He simply quotes Joel and says, you know that promise that all of us have been waiting for for hundreds of years? How God is going to pour forth His Spirit upon all mankind? That's what made this era so unique. The launching of the, 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 the newness of recreation. They started with the resurrection of Jesus, and it was the foreshadowing of what could happen to all of us. There's now a whole new energized dimension to life that was not there before. Jesus is the first fruits, and we're, you know, we, we possess this new life now, but we get to realize that fullness later, it's a great thing. And, uh, but the Spirit's coming was what inaugurated all of this. And he um, goes, well, that moment's happening for you right now. And he quotes Joel, to, Joel chapter 2 to them. And then he goes, now, let me tell you about Jesus. And you hear the first articulated sermon, gospel message, good news from the mouth of Peter. And what did he say? Well, you know this Jesus, you know, the one from Nazareth that no one good can come from? Well, he was good. In fact, he performed a lot of miracles, and a lot of you sitting here in this audience were witnesses of those things, or you at least you heard about them, and that was God's seal of approval. This guy was telling the truth. Why didn't you listen to him in the first place? And you, and but by God's foreordained design, he lets you kill him. Wasn't a surprise to God. It's all falling right as God planned, because he came to die for our sins. And you killed him, and you buried him, and three days later, God raised him from the dead, and he goes on and spends the bulk of that sermon, and it's not word-for-word plenary. He's giving you the framework in which Peter preached. But he spends the most of his time uh, passing out to the Jewish mind from Old Testament Scriptures that, you see, this Messiah was supposed to die, and he was supposed to raise from the grave. Resurrection. Everything hinges on the resurrection. And then he, of course, comes to the conclusion and says, well, this Jesus whom you have crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. And what notice what the result was. So there's the testifying. Here's, an, here's a man doing it with the emboldened presence and fellow accompanied testimony of the Spirit of God himself. Notice, Spirit can testify and so will you. And notice what happens. What's the next verse? And they were cut to the heart. In the Greek, it's the most intense, gut-riching, God got, out, got their attention. They said they were just broken. And they said, what do we do? What do we do? We killed God. And God could have turned that place into a crater and been justified. This is what you get. Yeah, morale disappeared. It just, you know, just evaporate into smoke. <laughs> That's what I would be expecting. Isn't that the world's way? Power. You're on my side, you're in good shape. You ain't on my side, you're in bad shape. And then Peter says, peace. I, I've got something for you that's so good you can't imagine. God's going to let all of us in on this anyway. I'm going to save every one of you. If you want. And he invited them all to come in. Repent. Just turn. Look at me. Be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. 
and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. His promises for you, Jews, that's who is in front of them, and your children, and all those who are far off, by the way, involving all of us here in this room, unless there are some native Jews here, Gentiles, as many as the Lord will call, is just now starting. So, who got the attention this day? He did. That's how I know the Spirit. All those things that were going on, I knew they belonged to the Spirit of God because Jesus was the bottom line. Right? And that's the purpose of this class. We will pick up next week. I will begin to ask the question, so, this kind of, you know, this becomes a difficulty. How do I receive the Spirit? How do I know I've got it? What dimensions are there to that? Just a cerebral acknowledgement, uh, experiential acknowledgement. Can I know? Is it just kind of guesswork? Um, And what does it mean that I actually possess it? You know, can I, if I answer the question, though, if if I understand that the Spirit is God, so we're really talking about how do I receive God? If you'll notice, it's the same question. But we're going to tweak it in a specific context with, because the Spirit talks about you receiving the Holy Spirit. Just like in Acts 2 as an example. But it's mentioned a whole lot of other times. So have you? How do you know? Good question. I'll try to kind of peel that one back a little bit starting next week. Let's pray.